Welcome to another episode of the Clay County Beacon Podcast. My name is Josh Allen, and today I am excited to have with me Ken Willie, who is running for Florida's 18th uh, House District here uh, in Clay County. Uh, and and Ken and I are going to have a conversation about um, you know his stance and why he's running. And and Ken is one of my favorites because he is the first libertarian to come on the podcast. So Ken, I'm excited to have you here. Thank you, first of all, for coming on the show. Tell people that are listening a little bit about who you are and why you are running uh, for election here in this uh, 18th district race. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Um, my name is Ken Welly. I'm a libertarian running for State House District 18, as you said. Uh, I'm, I, I grew up in Florida. I was born in Pensacola, raised in the, the Panhandle. Right out of high school, I joined the Navy. I spent the next 20 years in the Navy. Uh, a couple of times I was back in Florida in the Navy. And when I retired, I decided my wife was from Jacksonville, so we settled in, in the Orange Park area. When when I got out and I started looking at politics, it, it's something that's always interested me, but I, I always paid more attention to the national level. So when I, I got out and I started paying more attention to local and state politics, I was really disgusted at, at the corruption, the amount of money that, that flows into politics in Florida. It's, it's mind-numbing. And so I decided to, to get involved and bring attention to these issues and, and try to move the needle a little bit. Yeah, that's good. Um, you know, I've always said we need more people involved at the local and the state levels. Um, you know, I, I'm going to ask you a question that I get as someone who sort of professes to be a libertarian myself. Um, Ken, what the heck is a libertarian? It's an entire philosophy, really. As a you know, Republican might say that they're conservative, or a Democrat say that they're liberal. Libertarians are libertarian. So it's a a basic philosophy that it can be uh, distilled down to don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. Uh, a little bit more, you know, we have what we call the non-aggression principle, which says that we don't advocate for the initiation of violence to achieve personal or political goals. Yeah, and that's you know it's it's such a <laughs> as I'm sure you know it's it's such a foreign concept to people when when someone you know like you or I is like yeah I don't really see a whole lot to to be a fan of in either you know the major political parties and you know you hear some some <laughs> at least I hear a lot of wild speculation about what libertarians are and what they aren't uh, you know and, and really it's that and and I think that's such an essential. Uh, thing that once people really get what the non-aggression principle is where you know don't hurt people don't take their stuff and and they start to see politics through that lens it, you know a lot of people have sort of converted to not necessarily by joining the libertarian party but sort of i've seen a lot of people's thought processes converted to uh you know libertarianism because they realize that it really is such a, a cleaner and more sensical policy you don't have to do any sort of mental gymnastics to justify what a what your party uh you know that you you you're a member of is doing because you 
you have a very clear and clean plot of philosophy, which is don't, don't hurt someone. Don't take their things. Don't use force to push your will on other people. So I guess sort of the, the next natural question that most people I think would have would be how does the, what you're running, uh, the platform that you're using to run for uh, state house, like how does that differ from, you know, the, the major other contender is a Republican. How would you compare and contrast what your policy positions, your, your thoughts on that office compared to the Republicans? Well, first we have to look at what is the role of government. And that's a, a major point. When uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, it says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed with certain unalienable rights. And he goes on to say that men form governments to protect these rights. That's not an exact quote, but he was pointing out that these rights, they exist before government. And the legitimate role of government is to protect those rights. It's not to take care of you. It's not to... uh, build roads or so many other things, the role of government is to protect our rights. And that's how I see what I want to do. Now, I'm not saying I want to get completely out of building roads, but we have to to realize, you know, it's not our job to provide health care. It's not our job to provide uh, a living wage or any of this. Our job is to protect the rights of the individual. When you look at the other parties, their focus is getting reelected and raising the money to get reelected. And so their, their philosophy naturally goes in the direction of what's going to raise them the most money. And, uh, you know, I, I just want to get government out of our lives. Yeah. The, the classic, uh, example, the, one of the talking points I like to use with people to, to sort of make it inroads into sort of that, that thought process that the government is not there to protect you from everything that could possibly happen. It's there to ensure your rights. And we could have a bigger conversation about how all rights, you know, property rights from the foundation of all other rights and, and that sort of, sort of deeper level libertarian stuff. But usually the, the inroad that I make with someone is, is seatbelts and seatbelts and motorcycle helmets specifically. It's actually not the government's job to save stupid people from doing stupid things to themselves. So if you are a person in this day and age with all the evidence and research that's been done about motorcycle helmets and seatbelts, and you are dumb enough to not wear a seatbelt when you are driving around and you die in a car crash, it's not the government's job to prevent you from doing that. It's not within their purview. No one's rights have been violated. If you drive a car, you get into an accident and you kill yourself from not wearing a seatbelt, you know, that's on you. Uh, and a lot of people, it's just such a foreign concept. But when they really start to think about it, you know, when you walk them down the path of like, if I don't wear a seatbelt and I get in a car accident, um, 
it, I am not doing harm to anyone by wearing a seatbelt. Now I can do harm to someone else by driving my car recklessly, driving drunk, things like that. But the actual act of not wearing the seatbelt doesn't hurt anybody else. Um, so, and, and people, some people really struggle with that. And it's sort of like being plugged into the matrix, right? Like you, you watch the movie, the matrix and some people just aren't ready to come out and you have these conversations you can, and you can tell some folks are just clinging so hard to the fact that like, no, it's government's job to protect us. It's government's job to, to keep bad things from happening. When just as you said, it's really not the government's role is to protect the rights of people because that's really what a functional society is built around. Um, and it's good to hear somebody. Yeah. Everything that the government does has, an unintended consequence. And there was a study done after the seatbelt law, and it's only one study, but it said that while deaths inside the car went down after the mandatory seatbelt law was passed, that pedestrian deaths actually went up because people are willing to take a certain amount of risk. And if you mitigate some of that risk in one area, then they'll take more risk in another area. Now, that may not be the cause of the increase in deaths outside, but, you know, it, it possibly did. It's something that maybe we should look at more. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and that's that's another that's another good reason to, to keep government as limited as absolutely possible, right? Uh, the more limited it is, the more the less impact that that government has in general, the the less unintended consequences you know it can have from from what it from the actions that it takes, right? So, um, so what what are your like? What's your main priority? Let's say you know Ken Willie gets elected to um, the state government. Um, what are you going in on the first day? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? What's your main objective? Well. I have to be realistic. If I'm elected, there's one other libertarian I'm running for state house. Let's say we both get elected. We're two people among 120. So our priorities are not going to be everybody else's priorities. My priority is to try to support legislation whether it comes from the left side of the aisle or the right side of the aisle, support the legislation that increases our freedom and oppose legislation that reduces our freedom. Uh, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. If, if that means I have to work with one side one day and the other side the other day, that's, what I have to do. Now, my priorities, if I could go in and, and start passing laws and, and get what I want done, then uh, I would probably focus on repealing a lot of laws. Uh, you know, we, we have entirely too many laws on the books, but you know, as a nation, across the board from the federal down to the local level, we've criminalized far too many things. If we, if we don't have a victim, then we shouldn't have a crime. So getting rid of uh, victimless crime law. Uh, I agree with the movement to end qualified immunity. Um, 
definitely reforming no-knock rates. Uh, reforming or possibly ending the drug war. I really want to focus on health care. And, uh, and issues like this we have to look at. Why are we at the point we are now? And a lot of it, if you go back through history and you look at health care, I, I like to say that the government's done one thing well. A hundred years ago, they were worried that the price of health care was so low that they would have a shortage of doctors. And they wanted to raise the price of health care. And they've, they've been extremely successful at that. But we have to look at why are those prices that high? And the truth is that the market, the free market's been taken out of health care. And uh, what's replaced it is a lot of middlemen who make a lot of money without actually adding any value to the transaction. Right. When you hear about these, uh, people get a hospital bill for $10,000. And it makes the news. We have to realize that those prices are not in any way connected to reality. But a system has been put in place for a guy to get a bonus for getting a discount when negotiating with the hospital. And the system's been put in place for the hospital to go to the government and get reimbursed because they only got $50 for an aspirin instead of 100 So we, we have to address this system. And the free market bringing down the cost of access to quality care isn't a theory. It's not a, a dream. This is something that's actually happening on a small scale because it's a small scale because the people making all the money are trying to push it out. So we need to protect those those people that are actually managing to bring down the cost of care. Uh, these people are your direct primary care providers are the, the front line. Um, there's a few surgery centers, ambulatory surgery centers around the country that do an upfront price for uh, a surgery, for a procedure. Uh, people across the country are using those prices to negotiate better prices in their town. Because the, the price that they're being told upfront for that amount, they could fly to Oklahoma, have surgery, and still save money. So last year, the state legislature did uh, repeal a lot of the certificate of need laws, which uh, forced people to go to the government and ask for permission to build more hospitals or provide more care. And they, they managed to repeal a lot of that we need to repeal a lot more. We also need to make sure that these direct primary care doctors are not regulated as insurance because they're not. And we just, we need to 
protect the people that are trying to work on the free market. We need to protect them from cronyism. Yeah, I totally agree. I, you know, the, the story I always tell people is, <clears throat> you know, when, when my wife and I take our daughter to the pediatrician, it ends up being a charge. I think it's like 130 bucks every time. And even if it's like a two minute visit where they just look her over and give her some antibiotics if she's having, you know, like a sinus infection or something, it's always 130 bucks. And I, and I think, you know, opening things up to competition in the free market, I, I just think in a, in a free market scenario, there's no way that a doctor would charge a a flat rate of 130 bucks for everything, um, and b like you know I don't think that 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 they would be forced to take on as many patients, um, you know to to sort of I don't know about you but like when I go to the doctor a lot of times it feels like I'm in a meat grinder just get them in get them out bill 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 how many people can they see, um, I think the level of care and the co the level of care would go up. And the quality, uh, you know, the cost of the care would uh, would come down in, in a free market scenario. Because just like you said, insurance is nothing but a middleman. Um, you know, you've got Blue Cross of Florida, God love them. They're paying, you know, product uh, product managers and, and low-level, entry-level developers $100,000 a year uh, to come in. You know, and if that's your entry-level starting positions, like God knows what their executives and their higher-ups, their managers are making, right? Um, and all of that is money that they're taking from people via insurance premiums and obviously from the government uh, in, in other scenarios. But, um, you know, it's just one of those things like healthcare. I don't think there's anybody with a brain that looks at the healthcare system in America right now and says, yeah, these prices seem like they're uh, right. <laughs> you know, uh, so it, it, it's good to hear, you know, again, you know, good to hear somebody saying like, Yes, there's a problem, but not saying the answer is the government needs to take it over because God help us, you know, if the government manages to ever get to a single, single, uh, you know, single payer, single, single healthcare provider system that they're always talking about getting to. Um, so I know another thing that you're big well, on. Let's, yeah, go ahead. Let's, let's stick to this subject for just a little bit longer. Sure. Uh, you said you spend $130 a visit. Right. The direct primary care, the kind of the going rate that I've I've looked around and roughly for two adults and one child runs about two hundred dollars a month. That's crazy. With no copay. Yeah. And depending on state laws, if the state allows the doctor to dispense medication directly, a lot of times they'll carry common prescriptions in their office and they'll either include that as part of your subscription fee or they'll sell them to you at cost. Yeah. For, that sounds like a much better deal. Yeah. Yeah. For less than $200 a month. And people are, are seeing that if the doctor suggests they need a, an image or an x-ray, the doctors negotiated with local imaging centers. And if they go there and pay cash up front, it's cheaper than if they use their insurance and pay a copay. Right. So why aren't we doing this? And you know, in my case specifically, it's because it hasn't become widespread enough. Now, as a retired military, I have access to lifelong medical care through TRICARE Prime. As soon as there's a, a 
primary care system more widely spread, I'm going to drop TRICARE Prime. Because like you said, I, I go to an appointment, I, I wake up at 7 o'clock to start trying to make an appointment. If I get one, I go to the hospital, I'm seeing for five minutes, maybe, and then I wait another half an hour to get my prescription. When I want to refill my prescription, it, I call about three days before I need it to get it refilled. With direct primary care, these doctors, they have an incentive to make sure that you stay healthy because they're not going to get more money from you if you get sick. And they have a contract, so they're not going to drop you. So they have an incentive, and they'll spend time with a patient to get to know them. Yeah, I'll admit, I'm pretty ignorant of the, the direct primary care, but uh, I'm going to look it up after we're done talking here today, for sure. And that's sort of what I talked about. Uh, you know, I've talked about that for a while in sort of theoretical terms. If, if doctors had more leeway to negotiate with, you know, primary care doctors could negotiate with the specialists and everybody was negotiating with the customers up front, um, you know, the prices would come down because there's no middleman to pay, right? Like that, the problem is, you know, I think one of the reasons you don't hear a lot of promotion, you know, outside of people who are like you, uh, you know, proponents of direct primary care is because there's a lot of people who don't add value to the healthcare system in America that stand to lose a ton of money if something like direct primary care gains traction. Right. So right. the the health insurance and companies there, and, and other folks. There is still a place for health insurance. And it's pretty much the same as auto insurance. When you have an accident, when you have a catastrophic event, you need something that can pay those big bills. But you don't buy insurance to get an oral change. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's a good good comparison. I'm going to steal that from you, Ken. I'm going to use that when I'm, <laughs> when I'm talking okay. to people. I stole it from somebody else. All right. Um, you know, and then we can talk about the VA system. I, I don't even, I'm not even enrolled in the VA system because I've been to VA clinics with other veterans. And I'm not impressed. I, I don't want to get into that system. Yeah, I've, I've heard horror stories. I think I told the story on, on a previous episode of the podcast where uh, there's a veteran friend of mine who, uh, you know, using the VA, needed some some pretty critical care, had a crisis, uh, you know, and, and calls him up. He's like, listen, I need to talk to somebody, you know, soon. I have a real, real problem that I'm dealing with. And, you know, they gave him an appointment that was like six months out. You know, and it's like when you're in need of real dire critical care and you're relying on the government to provide it to you, you know, that's the sort of result that you get. And so, you know, I know there's a big, big hubbub over the new VA clinic that was open here in Middleburg. Um, but, you know, and, until that system is, is sort of <laughs> retooled from the ground up, uh, you know, I'm not sure that opening more clinics is ever going to really solve its problems. But, uh you know, that and I think the DMV are the two classic examples that, that I always talk to people about when they talk about, no, the government, when people say the government should take over healthcare, the government should be in charge, it's too expensive, you know, the government's part of the problem. It's, it's not good at, it's not good at being efficient at anything, you know, so giving it control of something 
you know, like healthcare, I just can't see, I can't see that turning out in any sort of positive way. Um, I want to switch topics a little bit. Uh, let's talk about the second amendment. It is, uh, one of my favorite topics. Uh, I've been told that, that my, my views are, are quote unquote extreme, uh, when it comes to second amendment. I, I think the second amendment, the, the whole shall not be infringed phrase in there is critical. And I believe people should be able to own whatever sort of weaponry, um, they want. I know that typically speaking, uh, libertarians are, are much more friendly to the second amendment, um, than some of the other major political parties. Where does Ken Willie stand on second amendment? All gun laws are infringements on your natural right to life, liberty, and property and the right to defend your life, liberty, and property. Well said. I completely agree. Um, I go a step farther with folks too. Have also sort of laid the groundwork. Not not me. I've actually huh, stolen it from some other folks. That that you could argue that uh, you know, gun laws are actually uh, pretty racist in their implementation. The government has actually used gun laws to prevent minorities from defending themselves against uh, you know infringements of their other rights from the government and government violence. So so uh, so would you have? Um, is there any specific sort of legislative agenda that you would take to Tallahassee if you get elected or, or just in general, is it more of like an awareness thing for you? You want people to be aware that, that, you know, gun laws are infringements or how, how would you approach that? Well, there's some issues that I, I may not believe that I can get past, but I'm going to make a lot of noise about and gun rights is one of those issues. Our Republican control of, state government has been bad for gun rights. And I, I started following this. This is one of the first things I started following in, in state, state politics. So people like to call us the gun, gun shine state. But when you compare us to the rest of the country now, we're really kind of in the middle you know, we're not California or New York, but we're not Montana either. We're one of only a, maybe a half a dozen states that practically bans open carry. In the last 10 years, at least a dozen states, we're up to about 16 or 17 states that no longer require a permit to carry a concealed weapon, what we call constitutional carry. And the Republican Party of Florida won't even consider these issues. Now, in the past, they've, they've brought forward bills, and I, I started watching this. Now, introduce a bill It'll go through the committee process and the House will vote on it and they'll pass it. The Senate will take it all the way up to the last committee and kill it. And I thought, this is strange. This has happened at least a couple of years in a row. And I started to think, these are, are Republicans who run on being pro-Second Amendment. But a few years ago, it was 2016, uh, Senator Miguel Diaz, 
de la Portilla, I believe, announced publicly that these bills would not pass his committee in the Senate. He wasn't even going to put them on the calendar. And he went as far as doing an interview with a pro-gun control media outlet saying that he had senators and House members from both sides come to him and thank him for killing those bills so that they didn't have to make a public vote. The next year, uh, Senator Flores pretty much announced that at the beginning of the session, and these are both Republicans, she announced that gun bills were effectively dead. And even basically endorsed the the Bloomberg line. Uh, You can find pictures of her with Moms Demand Action activists that are calling her, you know, the new hero of gun sense. And I, I realized that when the House takes this bill up and the Senate committees take this bill up, they know it's not going to pass. But they can vote for it and get that A grade from the NRA and campaign on being pro-gun. Knowing that it's not actually going to pass. And we saw this in 2018 with the Parkland bill. And when it came up, it was passed by Republicans. Yep. The Democrats didn't vote for it because it didn't go far enough. So now, a 20-year-old single mother can't buy a shotgun for self-defense. And the Republican Attorney General of Florida, Ashley Moody, is defending that in a challenge in the court. So and let me yeah. ask you, how, how would that law specifically prevent uh, a 23-year-old single mother from buying the shotgun? Well, a 20-year-old. A 20-year-old, gotcha. Because it raised, it raised the limit to buy a long gun, a rifle or a shotgun, to 21, where it had been 18. Gotcha, okay, yep, so, yep that makes sense. Right, prior to that bill passing, on your 18th birthday, you could walk into a gun shop, put your money down, do a background check, and walk out with a shotgun or a rifle. And you said Ashley Moody is defending defending the fact that now you have to... Yeah. yeah. So after that bill passed, now there's a three-day wait for that long gun, and you have to be at least 21. Unless you're active duty military, law enforcement, or a couple of other carve-outs. Now, the Attorney General is defending it on the grounds that at 18, you can still own a shotgun, a firearm. But let's look at some cases. We live right next to Jacksonville with a large Navy presence. What if you have a Navy wife comes here from somewhere else in the country. Her husband goes on deployment. 
They're low ranking. They live in a not so good neighborhood. If she wants to buy something for self-defense, how is she going to do it? You can't give the money to someone older and have them buy it for you because that's illegal. That's a straw purchase. If she doesn't have family members or very close friends that would gift her one, then she can't get one. She could possibly buy one from another individual if she trusts somebody. She could Uh, you know, it's kind of, you're stuck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, theoretically in that scenario, what the the government has done is create the opportunity for a black market to exist, right? Like there could be individuals that are selling guns, you know, the the government can try to prevent straw purchases all they want, but, but I, you know, I think you and I know that, that people are doing that anyway. Um, and it's the same argument that I have against, you know, the the legal drinking age and and this minimum age to buy cigarettes you're you're telling me we can send someone off to die in a in a foreign war at the age of 18 but that person who is willing to to go in and do those sorts of things is not able to come back and buy buy a drink or buy a cigarette or now you know buy buy a shotgun and you know i i don't know that you know again i'm so anti most of this stuff that that people People don't want to have conversations with me about it, but the government right. isn't good at it. You know, again, we talk uh, talked earlier about the sort of ancillary side effects of government action. You know, again, we're just creating a black market here for uh, for people to go and, and do things off the radar. Um, you know, without the government knowing that they're doing it. But it's all it's all knee jerk reactions too. That's another big problem that the government at all levels have. An awful thing like the Parkland shooting happens, and instead of taking the time to dissect it and really understand what made that person go do an awful thing, we, uh, we, as a society, have a knee-jerk reaction. We say, oh, well, this happened because this, this is now illegal, and there can be no discussion about it, and if you're against that happening, then you're a terrible person, and, and blah, 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 because that's what happened with the Parkland shooting, they really tried it, and it came from Republicans and Democrats. Well, if you're anti these laws that we're trying to pass to prevent another Parkland, then, then, you know, you're an awful person and, and how dare you, um, you know, and it sounds like, you know, to sum up your, everything we've talked about, the focus for you as, as for most libertarians is really on individual rights. Um, you said you want to, you know, get the government out of people's lives. Um, and I think that's such a, a wonderful thing to hear because I think, you know, people have the right to live, as they please, um, as long as they're not hurting someone else, is there, you know, is there other than we've talked about healthcare, we've talked about, you know, second amendment rights. Like, is there, is there anything else that, that you would take as a priority to Tallahassee that would promote, you know, maybe individual rights? That really is, is the focus of individual rights. Uh, really the individual is the only thing that has rights. States don't have rights, and you know, people ask me, "Do I believe in states' rights?" No, a state is not an entity, a, a person. They can't have rights. Uh, human rights are the individual rights. So it comes down to: Do you own yourself? 
and I, I don't mean that from the sovereign citizen uh, perspective of you know they're crazy uh, they're crazy ideas but it comes down to do you own yourself do you have the right to do with your body as you see fit as long as it doesn't infringe on the rights of another individual so as far as government I want to bring that as, as close to the people as possible we can't make one size fits all decisions in Tallahassee. We can't do it in Washington, D.C. We can't even do it in Green Cove Springs or Orange Park. But as the closer we get to the people, the easier it is to make decisions relating to the individual. There's a, a saying that power corrupts. So the solution to that is to take that power and spread it out as thinly as possible. And that's pushing it down to the individual. So your medical decisions, that should be between you and the doctor. I'm not a doctor. There's very few doctors in the legislature. They're mostly lawyers. Education decisions, that's not something for politicians and lawyers to decide. That should be between the teacher, the school, and the parent. So we go back to the individual and the role of government. There are some things that that uh, the local government complained that the state government does and the state government oversteps its bounds. Uh, for instance, one thing that uh, our Senator Bradley did was uh, he sponsored a law that got passed that, that a local municipality cannot pass a law that prevents you from growing a garden in your front yard. And I absolutely agree with that. You own that property. You should be able to grow whatever you want on that property. With a possible exception of finding a, an HOA contract or an agreement for a, a neighborhood. You own that property. You grow what you want there. Now, look at another issue like preemption of gun laws. We have local politicians saying that the state government is overstepping their bounds. No, the government is protecting the rights of the individual in that case. So the state government should only step in to the local government when it relates to protecting the rights of an individual. Right. And at the same time, the state government should stand as a, a firewall against the federal government. So if the federal government tries to push something on the states, we have to be willing to invoke that 10th Amendment that says you don't have that specifically enumerated power. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and right now, you know, we have a uh, governor who you know, doesn't sort of see it that way. Right. Like he's very friendly to the federal government. Uh, you know, I've always, 
you know, I'm always talking to people about the fact that there, there's no possible way that someone in Washington, D.C. can possibly understand what it's like to be me, a guy in Middleburg, Florida, living my life. And, and I can't possibly understand what it's like for somebody in, you know, Seattle, Washington or, or you know, even uh, Arizona, North Carolina, like the, the the country is so large and so diverse in terms of, of people's everyday lives that that when you when you get any sort of entity that's making broad laws that are supposed to meet the needs or protect the rights of you know some three hundred plus million people, it just it just can't it, it, that can't be you know can't be effective. And even in Tallahassee, Tallahassee, Florida is such a huge state that Tallahassee can't possibly know what's right for each individual. Uh, person that lives in, in every state or every uh, county and, and city within the state. Um, you know, so I, I agree with you that the state government should exi- be an insulation between local erosion of personal rights and, and overstepping from the, the federal government. And, you know, I wish we had more politicians that see it that way, but, um, you know, unfortunately we don't. Um, so, well, you uh, know, originally I, I thought that I wanted to run for Congress and I started I, in 2012, I actually was a, a write-in candidate for Congress the, the year that uh, Congressman Yoho won. And I, I thought that that's what I wanted to do. But the more I looked at it, one, I realized that they're so distant from us and there's so much money that goes into those elections that your, your individual doesn't have a lot of sway there. And we have 27 uh, congressmen, two senators. We have 40 state senators and 120 state representatives. So they are a lot closer to your state legislature. They're a lot closer to the people because they represent a lot fewer people. And during the recession, the only area of the country that was really prospering was right around Washington, D.C., because that's where all our money goes. Right. And they've become, I I call it a bubble. Inside the Beltway is a a different reality. They have no idea what's really going on down here. The the people that are working every day. You know, maybe they, they know, you know, they're big fundraisers in the country clubs. But do they know what we need? And I, I decided, you know, Washington's really broken. We need to, back to localization, we need to bring a lot of those decisions back here. As many as possible. And if anybody watched that debate the other night, I don't see how you can walk away from that thinking, one of these guys should have that much power. Anybody who's having anxiety over the possibility of Trump being reelected should say nobody should have that much power. 
we can't let this happen again. Anybody that has anxiety about the possibility that Biden may win should be saying the same thing. We should not allow any person to have this much power. So I, I decided I wanted to get back to a smaller level of government and try to make that change. Yeah, that's good to hear. So I, I think that's sort of a good spot to, to kind of wrap things up. I, I want to give you um, the same uh, opportunity that I give everybody uh, who comes on the podcast. Uh, give the, the, the people of Clay County, the, the folks who are listening to the podcast, your 30-second elevator pitch on why they should vote for you uh, for state government. Well, I don't know if I can squeeze it down that low. Um. Give me a second here. First off, partisanship is, is tearing this country apart. I understand that, that my biggest hurdle, aside from money, is the fact that people are going to walk into the voting booth and they're going to check their party. And a lot of times it has come down to not what that candidate believes, but do they have the majority in this district? Do they expect to win? And they're not even working for it. I want to meet people. I want to talk to them. I want to explain to them why we got to the point we are now and how we can fix that problem. And it's usually not by passing more laws. It's by getting rid of the ones that caused that problem. How was that? That was good, yeah. So uh, <laughs> let people know, what's the best, if someone wants to, to get more info about you, what's the best way for them to look you up? Do you have a Facebook page, or, or how, do you, how are you getting information out there digitally? I have a Facebook page. Uh, I have Twitter. I have Instagram. Um, right now, I don't have a, a regular website. Uh, if you go to kenwilly.net, that's K-E-N-W-I-L-L-E-Y dot N-E-T, that'll take you to my Facebook page. Uh, if you scroll through things, you'll, you'll find what I believe on uh, most issues. If you don't see it, ask me and I'll, I'll be happy to explain it. But for the most part, it's, uh, if you say, should the government, I'll stop you and say, probably not. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. There ought to, or if you say there ought to be a law, you know, you know, no, there should be, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, you know, I appreciate you spending some time with me and, uh, you know, I wish you best of luck at the polls and hopefully we'll uh, be able to get you to Tallahassee. Thank you. I appreciate it.